welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. Here on Straight Talk, we're bringing the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. I assumed that you had to come from generations of winemakers. And so one of the first questions I asked was, can I learn? I wouldn't be fit, equipped, or deserving of calling a wine my own if I wasn't worthy of of saying as much. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator, and in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting Wine Spectator's October 31st, 2023 issue. Our cover story features a gorgeous gallery of some of the world's most beautiful wineries, always a fun and lively topic to discuss, and we'll be doing exactly that with our podcast director, Rob Taylor, talking about the evolution of the winery, aesthetically and architecturally. Our October 31 issue also includes senior editor Bruce Sanderson's Tuscany Tasting Report, covering the latest releases of Chianti, Brunello, Super Tuscans, and more. And we've got senior editor Marianne Warbeck's New Zealand Tasting Report, and she's joining us here in the Napa studio right now to talk about it. Welcome back, Marianne. Hey, James. Thanks for having me, and thanks for being in Napa. So this is the first chance we've really had to dive into the New Zealand wine scene on the podcast. And before we get to our main interview segment, catch us up on New Zealand. Is it all still just Sauvignon Blanc? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you have a signature grape in your wine region, you wish you didn't. And if you don't, you wish you had a signature mm-hmm. grape. Right. Um, New Zealand's signature grape of Sauvignon Blanc is absolutely earned. It's the majority grown, it's the majority made, and it's the majority imported into the U.S., But if you look at my top scores from this year's report, you'll see the conversation really should also include Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays as much as the Sauvignon Blancs. And when they've got that signature grape that is so dominant to the category, is there anything new? What are some of the new faces that might have caught your eye this year? Yeah, thanks for asking. You know, I've been noticing more and more that there's kind of this divergent quality in New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. On the one hand, you have... Uh, the direction of consistent, high-volume, affordable wines, and no shade to those big producers that make those wines. They're absolutely worth the attention that they're getting. But on the other hand, there's a direction of smaller, um, mostly family-run companies that are really kind of pushing the envelope with quality and style. And, you know, their prices are a little bit higher, but absolutely worth it because I think they're really showing um, much more complexity to that category. Okay. Well, it sounds like New Zealand is humming along nicely, and I'm sure our readers are going to enjoy your tasting report. In connection with that, you also interviewed a rather special New Zealand wine star for this episode of Straight Talk. Tell us about your chat with actress Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah, it was uh, fun to bring a little sparkle to this podcast, um, in part because she will be a featured wine star at Wine Spectator's New York Wine Experience in October. Mm -hmm. But Sarah Jessica Parker has been involved with a New Zealand brand called Invivo. It was founded by two friends, Tim Lightbourne and Rob Cameron. I know she talks about Rob the winemaker a lot. And yeah, she's been working with them since 2019. The wines are incredible. I've given every single vintage 90 plus points. They appeared in our top 100 list. And, you know, before when I was talking about kind of the two divergent categories, they kind of fit in the middle between, you know, they're kind of a a producer that you're more likely to see out in the shelves, but they're not this huge conglomerate. And yeah, and I I think it's a really nice addition to the wine scene there. I did want to also mention that for those of you who don't know, when Sarah Jessica Parker talks about traveling around the world and trying regional wines and mentions the we, um, her husband is, of course, Matthew Broderick, Ferris Bueller to those of us Gen Xers. And... (laughs) 
Um, and yeah, I think it's it's really fun that she's bringing some attention to New Zealand and kind of um, more on the artistic side or the artisan side of Sauvignon Blanc than some of the mass produced ones. Sounds like it's going to be a good interview. So let's get to it. Sarah Jessica Parker doesn't need an intro, but I like a challenge, so I was going (laughs) to do one anyway. Of course, as she's known as an actress, a producer, she's received the Emmys, Golden Globes, and SAG Awards. She's a Broadway star. I'm excited about her imprint publishing, SJP Lit, because I've been taking book recommendations from you for years. Uh, She's also a fashion icon, an inspiration, and not surprisingly, a shoe designer. You can, of course, check her out in the Max series and Just Like That, which, congratulations, just got picked up for a third season. And, of course, we'll be talking about the fact that she added Vintner to her resume in 2019. So welcome to Straight Talk, Sarah Jessica Parker. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I love speaking with you. You know that. I've made that clear. (laughs) I follow you. I listen. I look. I learn. So thank you so much. It's always nice to spend time with you. Oh, thank you. So I'm excited to talk to you because um, this issue of Straight Talk will be covering uh, the issue of the magazine where my New Zealand annual tasting report is in. And the brand that you're involved with is, of course, from New Zealand. You just blended your fifth vintage. So I guess I want to hear, you know, how has that process evolved for you as far as um, the blending process? Oh, it's evolved. Um, You know, I came into the wine business, knowing very little and probably like a lot of basic civilian, you know, consumers, I ordered wine when I had some confidence. I relied on others who I thought must know more. Um, I traveled in large part just to drink local wines. Like that was a huge part of my, what compelled trips was, you know, local food, local wine, every place we go, we're always asking servers who are the most knowledgeable, you know, what's your table wine? What's from the vineyard across the street? Because I think it, you know, it's a wonderful gateway to a community, a village, a parish. (laughs) Um, So I, I loved wine, but I always assumed I didn't know a great deal about it. So I was, you know, naturally confounded when an offer came to be in partnership with InVivo. Um, because I simply thought I, I wasn't informed and educated enough. And to me, I assumed that you had to come from generations of winemakers. And, um, and so one of the first questions I asked him and Rob was, you know, can I learn? Will, will you be willing to share? And when I say that, I really mean it, you know, that I wouldn't be fit, equipped or deserving of calling a wine my own if I wasn't worthy of, of, of saying as much. And they've been incredible. So the first blending, you know, I had always been slightly intimidated by Sauvignon Blanc. I under, I thought I understood Chardonnay. It seemed more obvious, more simple. I could articulate the experience. Sauvignon Blanc, anytime I was at dinner with, especially these two friends of ours, I was like, oh, you want that? You order it. I don't know anything about it. It seemed a more sophisticated, complex feeling in your mouth, you know, but also it seemed appropriate and right that that would be the wine that we would produce out of the Marlboro region for obvious reasons. So that first blending was really understanding it. You know, what are we looking for? What's important? 
What doesn't exist? Why should we have a place on the shelf? How can we distinguish ourselves? And how can I be party to it, contribute, and still be learning and not steer somebody like Rob, who's a hugely experienced winemaker, you know, all over Europe for many, many years, you know, how could I make sure I'm not derailing him? Um, <laughs> I wanted them to feel very comfortable to say no to me um, and mm. to share with me why they were saying no. And now, as you've said, we're, you know, we've had a lot of years of experience and we've had, you know, fortunately, wonderful success. And I think that's in large part because we've really worked together and they've allowed me to contribute um, and and to learn and to listen. And they've um, encouraged me to break some rules and still be within the definition of a Sauvignon Blanc or a rosé, you know, or whatever we're pursuing. Right. And now we do, you know, blendings and we're back to doing them in person, which is so wonderful. We can talk about the COVID blendings, which were terrifying to me. And I can explain why in a minute to, to anyone who's, who's interested. Um, but we're just so much more, it doesn't make the experience of blending any less difficult or important. You know, we're always splitting the atom, but we understand each other so much and so well now we have a shared language and descriptions mm -hmm. we're pushing for the same things we're willing to take the same risks and and rob is always trying new things with those grapes those baby those baby newborn grapes <laughs> Well, let me just jump in here and, and explain that um, In Vivo it was founded by two friends, Tim Lightborn and Rob Cameron, the winemaker that you've mentioned. You know, I remember meeting Tim in Napa for lunch, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, and he had so much energy and enthusiasm. He's like, we want to do wine. We want to do it differently. We want to make it accessible. We don't feel like there's a place for everybody at the table with wine. And um, of course, bringing you on board, you know, just adds to that, um, to that appeal. Uh, since In Vivo has been, since the S, um, your version of yes. the In Vivo has been debuted, every single vintage has scored 90 points or higher. In my opinion, it just keeps getting better and better <laughs> every you. year. Um, but uh, you were, you were going to talk about the blending during COVID. I know you had to do that over Zooms. Um, yeah. What was that like? It was scary because I know this sounds silly, but when you're pouring into beakers, if you're off by the tiniest amount, it changes everything. Because even in the blending, when we're in the room together and we decide to bring something back in, if we're pulling from six different bottles from six different vineyards and we're putting in, say, 4%, when I'm pouring that 4%, it has to be the same exact 4% that Rob is pouring because wine is this ephemeral, like the grape is so cagey. <laughs> and so pouring on my own and making a mistake and starting all over again to be certain that we were tasting the same thing was just really scary. I mean, typically in a room, Rob will lead the pour or we'll be with him enough and he'll say, no, that's that's OK. You know, um, mm -hmm. but it was just scary because I am exacting anyway, for better or worse, in my own life. And to not be certain that we were tasting the same thing. Um, I also, you know, I had a card table. I had two card tables I pulled up from the basement that I use for um, 
mahjong. And I, I had every glass in the house pulled out. I had jars. I had 20, 30 glasses. I don't have like a spittoon. You know, I, I'm like, I, it's so many bottles. And then putting all these unused bottles, you know, we had lots left, you know, from the blend and just figuring like, what must people think if they look at our recycling? What does that, you know, what's happening in that house? Cause that's a lot of, that's a lot of consumption. Um, but it was just hard to feel confident I was getting those pores exactly right. But it's always, you yeah. know, as you know, anytime you're in a room with people, it's just better. The, the yeah. creativity is, it's more natural. It's more authentic. Having a computer be the conduit by which we're conducting this, it's just, and you miss, I miss them. I love them so much. I love being in their company it's just, um, so I'm so thrilled that we're able to be in person again. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've watched some of the, you guys put out videos of some of the blending uh, trials, and it seems like you draw some inspiration from the aspect of storytelling, which, of course, um, relates to some of your other careers. And um, I really love that. So, so I'm glad we talked about the blending first, because there are going to be some people here who are like, oh, it's just another celebrity label. Yeah. She's just slapping her name on a product. But you are obviously very involved in that. What what would you say to people who would naysay in vivo because you're a celebrity and, and but at the same time, your name is on this. So you are standing behind every bottle. What would be your response to that? I would say that they're right to be dubious, that a lot of people um, enter into business endeavors and everybody, you know, everybody has a different approach about the way they are involved, contribute, collaborate. And I think that that is absolutely fine. I have a fatal flaw of only being able to be 100% involved especially when you're asking for people's hard-earned dollars. I feel on principle that if I'm not involved in every step of it and I can't talk about it in an informed way, in an enthusiastic way, if I'm just putting my name on something without the information required, without the experience, without the true affection for what we're offering and what, what it took to offer it, it just doesn't feel for me honor bound. That is not to say that anyone else who conducts their business in other ways are wrong or right or bad or good. It's the only way I know how to do business. It's the same with my shoes. It's the same with my fragrance. I like to be involved. And also, I think I'm just a curious person. And I love the fact mm -hmm. that at a certain point in my life, when I thought I had a career, I've been given chances to have others. And I'm not casual about that. If somebody invites me into their business, I feel like I better be deserving. And I get mm -hmm. to learn about an entire new industry and everything about it, retail space and marketing. I mean, I meet with our partners and our distribution partners all the time. I'm on the road. I'm meeting with every spirit and wine distributor across the country. And I will do the same in New Zealand in the next year. We're always chatting with them. We're always talking to them. We're always hearing from them, learning from them. I'm making stops in stores. It's just for me to be informed makes me a better producer. And mm -hmm. I like the experience. So I understand people being skeptical and things looking mercenary um, because for some people, that's the way they want to do it. Um, and people have had great success doing it that way. I just can't work like that. Uh -huh. 
Great interview, Marianne. Thanks a lot for that. As you mentioned, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker is going to be presenting her wine on stage at Wine Spectator's New York Wine Experience at the Times Square Merit Marquis starting this October 19th. And tickets are on sale now at nywineexperience.com. Marianne, it's been great catching up with you here in Napa. I'm jetting back to New York. Surprise, surprise. I got to check on the cover story with Rob. And I'm going to check in with senior editor Bruce Sanderson on the Tuscany Tasting Report. So thanks, and I will see you soon. Yeah, don't forget to eat some more tacos before you head back to New York. (laughs) And I will see you on the Flippity Flip. Welcome home, James. Thanks, Rob. Good to be back. Not every day that Sarah Jessica Parker shows up on your podcast. I know. It's nice to have a celebrity in here once in a while. I know there's the collective eye roll when people hear about the celebrity labels, but she's involved, and there are labels where the celebrity is involved. She's the real deal. Yeah, the label's growing. It's having success, so I think it's important for our readers to know about that. Yes. But there's a lot more than Sauvignon Blanc in our October 31 issue, starting with this beautiful cover story on winery architecture, which you worked on, right, Rob? I certainly did. That is one of my favorite subjects. We spotlighted 11 wineries around the world, representing a time span of more than 500 years. Uh, When you try to crunch that many centuries of best-in-class architecture in a list of 11, well, I look forward to hearing from our listeners about which of their favorite wineries we snubbed. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of favorites out there. This was obviously just a numbers game trying to fit it all into one package. I was happy Cheval Blanc made the cut. I consider that the poster child for the modern minimalist approach in Bordeaux, and it really encapsulates what Bordeaux has done in the last two decades, which is their intra-parcel selection process. That's when you take a big vineyard, you break it down into small bits, and you put those into their each individual small vat, and it gives the wine greater detail. Cheval Blanc's a gorgeous winery and super efficient, too. It is a beauty indeed. I am happy to say that my all-time favorite winery building did make the cut. Beringer's 19th century Rhine House in Napa, mm-hmm. along with several other California standouts. Check out that full story in our October 31st issue and at winespectator.com. Yeah, thanks for that, Rob. The issue also features our annual Tuscany Tasting Report, which is a fan favorite, so it's time to welcome back senior editor Bruce Sanderson. Welcome, Bruce. Bruce. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Good to have you here. Uh, the Tuscan Report's always a bit of a sprawling thing. You've got a lot of producers and several vintages because it's a staggered release pattern. What are the the main vintages in the report this year? The main vintages I covered were uh, 2021, so early release reds and whites, and then Reservas, Grand Selezioni, and Super Tuscans from 2020 and some late release 2019s. Okay. And I think there's Brunello 18 in there too, right? That's correct. Yeah. Actually, Brunello has its separate report, which was in our June 30th issue. Right. But um, that's a vintage that you shouldn't overlook. Okay. Tell us the, the skinny on 2021. What's the style like of those early release wines? I like the 2021s a lot. I think it's a very precise, structured, and elegant vintage. It was marked by a spring frost, so the yields are down. I would say, in general, overall, about 30%. Uh, depends on place to place. But uh, the wines are marked by darker fruits and very vibrant structures. And how does that compare to 2020? 2020, the wines are richer. It was a warmer year. It was an earlier harvest. The wines are a bit rounder and I would say more red fruit profiles. So where should we be pointing our readers to? What are the producers that you found in this report? There are a lot of producers that our readers will be familiar with, of course. Antonori, uh, Ornolai, and Maceto from Bulgari to New to San Guido, Sasakaya. But I would also point out that uh, I think Fattoria de Felsina, 
did a wonderful job with their range of wines. And also I would look for Castelli di Bossi, which is uh, not a new producer, but this was the first time I tasted their Grand Selezione, which is a terrific value. And then also if you want to go slightly outside the major areas, uh, Monte Nidoli from uh, Vernaccia di San Gimignano and also Capizzana in Carmignano. Okay. Lots to digest in the Tuscany Report. Bruso, range of vintages and lots of wineries to chew through. So thanks for telling us all about that. You're welcome, guys. We've got Dr. Vinny coming up, but before we send Rob to the doctor, I want to remind all our listeners to help us spread the word a little bit. If you know a podcast listener who's into wine or a wine lover you think would dig our podcast, please tell them about Wine Spectators Straight Talk. And remember, you can always email us your comments and ideas at straighttalk at winespectator.com. It's time once again for our very popular Ask Dr. Vinny segment. Welcome back, Dr. Vinny. Hey, Rob. So, Dr. Vinny, this is our October 31st issue, and I know that you and I are both very excited about Halloween. Woohoo! So, I thought I'd give you a very scary question today. Ooh. What should I do with leftover wine? That is so frightening, Rob. I'm so glad you asked. Um <laughs> I know a lot of people might be like, leftover wine, what is that? But certainly a lot of people have been in that situation where they've opened a bottle of wine, but they're not able to finish it in one sitting. And you don't want to put the wine in a situation where it's going to fade any faster than it has to. So I do have some advice there. Once you open a bottle of wine, you expose it to oxygen. At first, that's a good thing because wines will become more expressive. That's why we swirl wines. That's why we might decant them. After a while, that oxygen is going to make the fruit flavors fade and become more muted. A lot of times when I talk about oxygenation, I always like to remind people about what happens when you cut an apple. You know, you cut an apple, tastes great, but then if you leave it alone and come back in a couple hours, it starts to turn brown and you know, it's not bad, but you might start to notice it tastes a little nutty. Nobody wants that brown apple. Yeah, exactly. So that's what's happening in essence with wine. You know, it won't make you sick, but it's not going to be as pleasant as when you first enjoyed that wine. So we need to protect the wine from oxygen. We can do that a couple ways. One is, of course, by transferring it to a smaller container. So there'll be less surface area where the wine is exposed to oxygen. And then also putting the wine in the refrigerator will help keep it cold and will kind of halt that or at least slow down that oxygenation process. If a wine is young and robust and it has a lot of acidity or a lot of sugar, it'll probably last a little bit longer. Older wines I've noticed really start to fade pretty quickly. So it depends on the wine. It depends on your own preference and your own, I guess, tolerance for those flavors. But if you transfer it to a smaller container or at least put the cork in and put it back in the fridge, you could probably get a couple more days out of enjoying that wine. Can I tell you what we do in the Taylor house when we're faced with this frightening scenario? Please do, Rob. What do you do in the Taylor house? So we take an empty plastic water bottle and we pour the leftover wine in there. And then I squeeze the bottle until that wine is almost to the top. And then I put the cap back on to try to limit as much of that oxygen exposure as possible. Am I doing it wrong? Am I doing it right? 
Oh, that's a great idea. Um, believe me, I've transferred plenty of wine and plastic water bottles into baseball games. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, at the Dr. Vinny household, we do basically the same thing. I have some slightly more sturdy um, glass uh, wine bottles with a twist off that are about um, the size of half a bottle of wine. And I, I like those because they take up less room in my fridge, too, and it's a little bit easier to store them. And there are some things that we can do with that leftover wine besides drink it, too, right? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. So, of course, wine is an excellent ingredient in deglazing if you're a home cook. Um, so it's always nice to have something around that you can pull out of the fridge and use for that. And with that in mind, you can also freeze leftover wine. I wouldn't keep it in the original bottle. I would put it in an ice cube tray. And I've done that as well. That's really nice to have a couple of ice cubes you can pop out if, you know, you're, you need something to deglaze and you don't want to open a fresh bottle. That's another good trip. And then, of course, there's always sangria. Good call. We need to come up with a spooky sangria. <laughs> well, some people might think sangria is spooky, but they've never tried my recipe, which is to always add a little bit of brandy. I learned that from a Spanish friend many years ago. So that always kind of smooths out the rough edges, I believe. Always some good advice from the doctor. <laughs> so less scary, Rob, about leftover wine? I feel a little braver now. Good. Good for you. For more of Dr. Vinny's free advice, check out her weekly column at our website or email us your questions right here at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Oh, thanks, Rob. Thanks, Dr. Vinny. That's it for this episode of Wine Spectator's Straight Talk Podcast. If you like the show, give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening so that more awesome people like you can find us. And if you know a Sarah Jessica Parker fan, or a Tuscan Wines fan, or anyone who's into wine, tell them about the podcast. Coming up in Wine Spectator's November 15th issue, we've got a big one for you, the Chuck Wagner interview. This is a big one indeed. Wine Spectator editor and publisher Marvin R. Shankin sat down with the Camus creator, Chuck Wagner, for a wide-ranging interview. We've got some video clips of that coming out soon at winespectator.com, but for the full interview, you'll have to check out the November 15th issue, which also includes my annual Cabernet report this year on the 2020 Vintage. We've also got a guide to the hidden treasures of California's Sassoon Valley and our annual Portugal Table Wines Tasting Report, plus a handy guide to Portugal's fine cheeses. But until then, our listeners can email us their questions or drop us a line at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow Wine Spectator on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and X. James, how about a look at that sneak peek wine pick? I got a goodie. And I got Bruce back in here to help us with it. It's the Capriya Chianti Classico Reserva 2019. 95 points, 35 bucks, and there's 2,000 cases made, which means you're going to find it. Bruce, we love a good Chianti. Tell us a little bit about this Capriya. I've been very impressed with their wines. They actually have two properties, uh, family-owned. Capriya is in Castellina in Chianti, and their other property, Rocca de Castagnoli, is in Gaoli. But they've been making great wines. Their uh, vineyard is at pretty high elevation, so you get a lot of vibrant fruit and uh, really good structure. But they're just beautifully balanced wines. That's got to be one of the top values. The Capriya Chianti Classico Reserva 2019, 95 points, 35 bucks. Thanks, Bruce, for helping us out with that. I'm James Molesworth, thanking you all for listening to this episode of Straight Talk and reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff.
My other favorite one is uh, the bear um, ordering a drink, and you all have a uh, a beer. And the bartender says, why the big pause? And he's like, I don't know. I always had them. <laughs> <laughs> there aren't many good wine jokes out there. There's more good beer jokes. <laughs>